You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Are you looking for a podcast that your whole family can enjoy that asks the deep philosophical questions like, do trees fart? If you are, then you'll love Tumble, a science podcast for kids. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Join us as we explore stories of science discovery from butts to animals, dinosaurs, astronomy, and everything in between. You'll love these stories and you'll learn something new. Find and follow Tumble Science Podcast for Kids wherever you get your podcasts or at sciencepodcastforkids.com. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. But king cobras are strictly Southeast Asia going into India. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, up into China. What can they teach us? Interestingly enough, their venom is yielded a whole bunch of pain relievers, such as cobraxin and also... Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. So what animal are we doing this week? Because that's not something I would put with the king cobra at all. I know, Chris. Oh my gosh. This is one of the many reasons why I love this podcast, of course, if I do say so myself, because every week these creatures are just full of so many surprises. And the king cobra is just an amazing snake. And we're going to learn a lot Mm -hmm. of fun facts about it today. And it blew me away when I learned that, of course, we know that most snakes hiss, right? Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I make a hissing vocalization. The king cobra is known to growl, and it makes yeah. that vocalization that I opened up with that growling sound, which is just one of the many ways it's, it's set apart from several other species of snake. And I just fell in love with it. Uh, right, right. The physiology is just so incredible. The behavior, oh my gosh, which we get the behavior and mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I had to open with it today and it, it's super unique, right? I mean, it sounded like, oh, a, yeah. like a bear oh, yeah. or something and it's uh, it's not. It's the the king cobra, which is mo- the king. It's the king. The king, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it'll, and it's just, we're going to have a lot of fun today because it is, of course, a venomous species of snake mm-hmm. and it is the longest. Yeah. species of venomous snake. So it's, uh, yeah, and of course we'll, we'll talk a lot, a lot about the, um, the infamous hood that cobras are known to have and just, but just so much fun. And I, I got to live vicariously this week 
uh, doing all my research and watching a lot of videos of of snake uh, expert handlers and researchers uh, and, and zookeepers because I was lucky enough when I worked at the zoo to get to work with snakes. So and that's mm-hmm, where I fell mm-hmm, in love mm-hmm. with like ball pythons and, uh, and, and of course the, the famous corn snake. <laughs> Everyone. Yeah, I know. I know. So cute. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But I was never cool enough to get to work with hot snakes, which in the industry right. is what we call venomous snakes. Cause it takes a lot of, uh, at accredited zoos, it takes a lot of certifications and practice and things like that. And I never, I never uh, was able to make it that far along. And so I just have a lot of respect for people that know how to handle them and understand their striking behavior and things like that. And as we'll find out through the podcast, is uh, King Cobra, although it has a powerful name, it's actually kind of shy in general. I know, I know. So I know. which. I know we talked about when we covered rattlesnakes too. Is you know they're really not trying to come bite you. No, you almost, not have, at you all. almost have to like step on them. Um, yeah, they don't. But want in the to same be instance, uh, uh, a lot of people fear them, and that's well understood. So we'll yeah, and persecuted a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. So we'll be talking about the science today and the facts, and maybe busting a couple myths here and there. And yeah, uh, yeah. it's just so fun. It's going to be a good one. Oh, and I mean, it's been forever since we've covered a reptile. And even longer since we've covered a snake, <laughs> it's, we've been we've been neglecting these guys for a little bit. So it's good to be back. And you know, for all of our herp friends, herpetology and herpetologists, herpers, yes, herpers that are out there that are excited that we're covering another snake, and you know, might as well go big and and go for one that's so iconic. And they're like Angie said, like they're not a true cobra. Like this is a a fact that when I get to evolution, I'm like, what? I know. This is the king. This You're is the right. king. This and it's is not why even I a love true this cobra, pod, so. man. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So they're incredible. they're amazing. It's going to be a fun species to cover today. And just before we get there, thanks to our listeners. You know, first we Melanie and Emily joined us on Patreon this week. Thank you both so much. We have seen some incredible growth these last few weeks, you know, during uh, everybody locked indoors, like 30, 40%. Like our downloads are insane. It's amazing. Yeah, it's uh, I sent Chris a screenshot the other night. I'm like, holy macaroni, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I know. We've we've grown huge. So thank you. You know, thanks to our, our new listeners that are catching on to the podcast and those that are sharing our podcast. You know, uh, people that like Lee down in Australia still sharing every week and and we just appreciate it and thank you thank you yes and if uh if you could please do us a favor and uh rate and review us on itunes that'd be great uh, it's starting a new month and i would love to have at least a couple glowing recommendations uh that makes our podcast uh be more present on some of the itunes circulating podcast yeah. networks so yeah, no, thank you. It, it means the world to us. And, you know, you're talking about behavior, Angie. It's, it's I can't wait to talk about snake charmers. You know, how do they do it? You know, looking at that behavior. And I think that's something we we're going to talk about. So, you know, stay tuned for that. But you did say they this is the longest venomous snake in the world. Mm-hmm. It is huge. It is huge. And probably one of the most gorgeous Yes, yes, yes. But I mean, over five meters, 18 feet long. Like that is insane. Yeah, that's some of the longer ones. I think average yeah. is about 13 feet, but yeah. It's still. I, <laughs> just, <laughs> I mean, you know, like yeah. two of you, but yes, yes yeah, still. Yeah, uh, yeah and uh, usually about 20 pounds in weight. So mm-hmm, that's, that's mm-hmm. a pretty, 
pretty fair amount for a snake to weigh. And in general, the males are the ones that are are a little bit bigger because they have uh, some sexual dimorphism going on mm-hmm. uh, compared to the females. So if you're if a king cobra is reaching 18, or I think it was even up up to like almost 19 feet, one in um, one in wow. under human care was on record. Uh, that's going to be a male. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And generally, there. I mean, the coloration: yellow, brown, black, maybe green. Mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm. and then they have those uh, crossbars or chevrons. Yeah, that so, was a new word that yeah. I learned. Chevrons. I would have just thought of them. Yeah. yeah, I would have called them bands. Uh, I like the terminology of cream, yellowish, whitish. Uh, mm-hmm. As you mentioned, crossbars, or I guess chevrons, if you're in the industry, along its body, and. The other thing too is that the juveniles are born jet black and then their crossbars are super distinct. They're like this white, light yellow uh, mm-hmm. from the tail all the way up through the head. And as they grow and become more of adults, the the bars, the chevrons can fade. And so I think some of the coloration patterns depend on the region that they're from too is how prominent the chevrons or the crossbars stay into the adult's life, but they're just beautiful. And then of course with cobras in general, especially king cobras, they are known to engage in that upright behavior where they can lift a large couple feet, sometimes (laughs) even more than a couple feet Mm -hmm. top half of their body off the ground. And so you get to see their underside of their belly a lot when they, when they're engaging some of the, the pre striking behavior and that will, you can see their hood. And then also of course, these stripes that go along their belly that basically, uh, that are black and then yellow banded basically. Right. So right. yeah, just, just really, really it's a, a gorgeous snake. snake. I mean, yeah. Just a gorgeous yeah. snake. And, and on their heads, they'll usually have a couple crossbars over the tops of their heads. And they have these beautiful, large, golden iris eyes. And, of course, the hood is, like, oval-shaped. And Chris will get into the physiology of the hood and how that enlarges when they are um, engaging in, like, either hunting or pre-striking mm-hmm. behavior. But it's often olive green and it has, it's like smooth. And and I think it's important too to mention that a lot of people think that snakes are slimy or sharp or icky, but uh, the king cobra, that's definitely not the case. They have very, very round, cylindrical, smooth scales along their neck and body. So they just have this very uniform, beautiful, smooth appearance that to me makes them really appeasing to the eye. Oh yeah. I think that's why they're one of the most iconic, you know, that hood and just that they're the, you know, especially the King Cobra, the the big one. And you mentioned, you know, 20 pounds or nine kilograms in weight, but their fangs are pretty big too, you know, being one of the largest venomous snakes in the world or longest, and they can be up to half an inch or up to 10 millimeters long. So you know, we'll talk a little bit about their venom and, and and striking. But again, like Angie said, these these snakes are shy, you know, and, and we go back to, like I said, it's been so long since we've covered a snake, you know, the Eastern Diamondback over 100 pods ago. So we'll revisit them again because there's so many cool snakes in the world. But again, generally snakes, you know, like we go back to that episode, still remember it to this day. 
they're very shy. It's the most of the snake bites I know, especially with rattlesnakes in the United States or in North America are because people are messing with them. You know, people are Mm -hmm. picking them up or it's very rare to come across them. And then, you know, you know, them striking unless they have a reason to. Yeah. Yeah. And the way that I describe it is that in general, Snakes are way more scared of you than you are of them. And I remember growing up and one of my girlfriend's moms always told us when we were probably in middle school and starting to have crushes on boys or whatever, she Mm -hmm. was like, oh, girls, just remember that boys are like snakes in the grass. They're way more afraid of you than you are of them. (laughs) It's true at that age. Yeah, that age. Definitely true. And so, Yeah. Yeah. uh, yeah, and so I think that that's, we just have to keep that in mind. And now- Depending on where you live, if you live in an area where there are venomous snakes, then yes, you need to be a little bit more careful. I grew up in Michigan. Historically, there used to be rattlesnakes in southwestern Michigan, but unfortunately, they've been pretty much eradicated in the area. Mm-hmm. So growing up, I just I didn't have to worry about any venomous snakes. And I so therefore I probably stuck my hands, head, body, leg parts right. into things I, you know, shouldn't have. And so now that I'm raising my boys. In central Florida, yeah. In Florida, we of course have a couple venomous snakes here, and uh, and I just teach them to always use common sense and Mm -hmm. to not put their heads, hands, body parts in places without really inspecting it first. And I think that's just a good life life lesson in general. But yeah. when we're, you know, we're out in nature a lot. And so we, mm-hmm. you know, if we're looking in logs or under piles mm-hmm. or uh, leaves or whatever it is, we're making sure that we, you know, either investigate it first gently with a long stick or making noise to let animals know that we are around. And so, yeah, some of it's got to, you have behavior and you have to, to have to uh, be, be careful and respect things. But that doesn't mean that we live in fear and we don't go on these amazing hikes or uh, things like that because, yeah, we haven't even seen one. I, I hear all no, the time, I, like, oh, there's yeah. coral snakes in our neighborhood. And I'm like, where? Yes, I want to see one. Oh, yeah. But I, you know, we haven't. I've caught along the road, I've, I've caught, crossed a couple sunbathing, a couple rattlesnakes, and I think a uh, cottonmouth sunbathing. And so we, I, you know, we stay at close distance and I just try to hopefully get them off the road of like, okay, go, yeah. go. Yeah. Um, yeah. Go do your thing. Go do your mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. My sister was just clearing a wood pile the other day outside. She lives outside Atlanta. And there was a snake in there. She couldn't tell what type it was, but I, you know, she's smart. She, in the movie industry, they like they have snake handlers on set wow. when they're out yeah. filming. Mm-hmm. You know, they have snake wranglers that go around the set to make sure there aren't any snakes. And they look, and if they do, they relocate them. You know, mm-hmm. so just got to be aware where you are and where king cobras are. Not in Florida. Mm-hmm. And real, you know, I even thought, oh. Before I did this episode, I, I knew they were from Asia, but I thought, oh, you know, how much, how many cobras bleed into Africa? You'll find out, you know, this isn't a true cobra. So that's where the true cobras are. But king cobras are strictly Southeast Asia going into India. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. Up into China, down into Indonesia and the Philippines. So that is where, that's their stronghold. That is yes. where they're from. Mm-hmm. Which that yeah. was, like I said, too, without knowing my cobra geography and really knowing mm-hmm. the different species intimately, I, I thought that was a really f- fun fact. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and you knew I knew in India, like they were a big deal in India. I knew India. So just, yes. Mm-hmm. I didn't know about yeah. some of the other places in Asia. Yeah. And the Philippines, like I didn't know they had Philippines there. And 
So, you know, their habitat, dense open forests, near water, mangrove swamps, you know, they, they like humidity, temperature. They'll actually spend a lot of time, almost a quarter of their time up in trees. You know? Right, Chris. I, I know. Was, mm-hmm, I, I, yeah, I was reading. I'm like, oh, and they, you know, they're good climbers, and they're and they're not really known to be an aquatic swimming snake, but they can swim, and they have been reported doing that as well. So, yeah, no, just really, really mobile and a uh, snake that can adapt to various habitats, but prefers to hide in general. Yeah, yeah, doesn't want to be messed with at all. Now. Again, one of the things I've been doing lately is like kind of highlighting these habitats, you know, and I found some surprising stuff about Southeast Asia. You know, I know we've done quite a few species there, you know, especially, you know, tigers. We've been doing a lot of stuff on tigers lately, you know, orangutans. Um, yeah, then we did gibbons. We did this, the, the giant squirrel in India. Oh, so the technicolor some, squirrel. That was a fun yeah, one. Yeah, that was amazing. That was amazing. So it's really rich in biodiversity. I mean, we know that the the tropical forest down there. I didn't realize how diverse it was. So you know they they say Southeast Asia contains some of the most biodiverse in tropical forests on Earth. So they have here we go of compared to other tropical forests, they have the most birds. They have the most mammal species. Wow. And I have the second highest proportion of vascular plant species, almost 25% come cool. from Southeast Asia compared to other tropical regions on Earth. Like the Amazon? So very, yeah. Okay. Very diverse. Mm-hmm. And you, you, you know, we think of the Amazon as incredibly diverse, but the tropical forest of, of this region of the world is actually more diverse. And a lot of it they talk about is, you know, reading up on this is, you know, way back then we, we talked a lot about how ocean levels rise and fell over the, you know, the ice age and other things like things like that, like the Komodo dragon. Mm-hmm. We talked about the Komodo dragon originated in Australia. And then when sea levels dropped due to the freezing, you know, polar caps, things like that, that's when they went to Komodo Island and those other islands. And then when the water came back, they got trapped there and they went extinct in Australia and stayed on these islands. Anyways, there was a lot of gene flow, I guess, a lot of biodiversity going on during those those time points. Now, question for you, Angie. Have I been to the region? No. Is it on my <laughs> no, bucket list? I know. Yes. I know. Can it. somebody over there host us? Please. <laughs> well, I'm looking specifically at the biodiversity or the the, the forest, right? So I came up with a you're reading this paper that I'm going to talk about here in a second. It was talking about where the world's forests are. And I thought, Oh, I bet you, I wonder if Angie knows this. So for the continent, you know, not even the total forest cover will surprise you, I think, but just look at each continent, the percent of land cover that is forest, whether it's tropical, boreal, whatever. Deciduous. Deciduous. Which one do you think is number one? Which, which of all the continents, which is the, has the most forest cover percentage for the total continent. Hmm. I love this game, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. I just did a fun Zoom trivia the other night. And okay. uh, yeah, my uh, my girlfriend and I, we were we totally came in first and then we did a conservative vet for the like the final answer. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I figured yeah. all the dude groups would like 
you know, bet it all and then lose. And, uh, <laughs> well, the, people could use this. They could use this. This will surprise you. Okay. Yeah. So da- I, I think the data is surprising. That's why I included yeah, I, it. Yeah, I think just off the top of my head, I I would have to say Asia. It's so big. And obviously, it's, the area no. of folk. No? You think, okay, Asia is huge, and this is percent land cover. So right. people and it doesn't don't matter. It doesn't matter what type of trees. Like, it doesn't have to be tropical. No, it can be, like, no, coniferous no, no, or... Here's the thing about Asia, and I love talking about Asia because, you know, especially Mongolia and Asia is an ocean of grass. Like I've said that before. It literally is an ocean size of savanna grass. Okay. And then Siberia. So it does have a lot of forests, but Asia only 19% of land cover. It's actually last place. Oh. (laughs) In this list of all continents. All right. right. Okay. Good to know. Um, So dense uh, forests, lots. For the whole continent. For the whole continent. So I would, my next guess would probably be either North America with the on the no. coniferous side or or South America on the tropical side. Okay. So it is South America's number one. All right. My third choice. Woo-hoo! Yes. Okay. But <laughs> think about, like, think of the central United States. What is central United States? Nothing but plains, right? Right. The plains. Right. That, no trees. Yeah, I was thinking more trees. of like Canada, that, that right. area. So uh, per percent of total continent size, South America, 49% is forests. Wow. Which okay. is huge. Okay, huge. this is 2000. This is a year in 2000. Uh, this is from the FAO, United Nations. 864 million hectares is South America, forest, right? Asia... 19%, but that's Southeast, you know, that's where we're getting to Southeast Asia. That's sure. where I'm focused mm-hmm. on. That's where a lot of the forests are. You would guess who's number two. It would surprise you. And it's got actually the most, it's over a billion hectares of forests. It, it will blow you away. Number two. Well, that hint makes me think that it's one I like Australia yeah. that I wouldn't think of at all. No, okay. <laughs> Australia's not even on here. I think Australia is zero or two okay. percent. Europe. Okay, that is going to be my next one. I would Europe. Think yeah. Okay. I didn't even think that. Europe. Forty-five yeah. percent of Europe is forest. Go Europe. So go Europe. Go. I know. Go but Europe. You think go about Europe, Eastern Europe and and Germany and yeah. France I just thought and, it was yeah. Like, yeah. Huh. Okay. Okay. Anyways. So that, I just thought the data was fascinating. That oh, we love you know, our numbers on this podcast. Yeah, I know. Big fan of numbers. And Africa, okay, Africa. Twenty three percent of Africa is forest, but it's actually number one in forest loss. Ten percent loss in ten years from two thousand to two thousand ten. Higher than South so, America or Indonesia. South America was right behind it with nine percent. Yeah. Okay. Huh. Yeah. Asia is actually positive, but. It's again that you're talking those boreal forests. Now, the reason I bring that up because the data, looking at the data, trying to understand Southeast Asia, is out of all the tropical regions on Earth, Southeast Asia has the highest deforestation rate. Oh, gotcha. So okay. even though Asia has a net positive, I mean, I think that a lot of that's like Russia and them planting trees or whatever. Yes, there. yeah, there's a big campaign to plant trees. Right. Not in Southeast Asia, where gotcha. the tropical forest is actually the, it's actually degrading faster than anywhere else. And that's on Earth. where the main diversity is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's where our king cobras are. So it's it's really so I looked at a paper. It was the state and conservation of Southeast Asian biodiversity. So this paper is looking at not only the deforestation rate, but it actually has the highest proportion. Southeast Asia 
the highest proportion of threatened species across all taxonomy, taxonomy, across all groups of things. <laughs> I can't say taxonomy, taxonomy. So between plants, reptiles, birds, mammals, they have the highest loss of biodiversity. The only exception was amphibians. So wow. Southeast Asia, I, this is surprising to me. Yeah. I know they're in trouble. Right. I know there's a, a lot of problems going there. I didn't realize it was that bad. Like Madagascar, bad. Yeah, I you know, didn't We either. go back and we covered lemurs. I mean, I guess yeah. I know like with the palm oil, with the orangutans, and we're mm-hmm. still trying to get an expert on here to talk about that. But mm-hmm. yeah, I wouldn't have put it on par, like you said, with Madagascar. That's good. You, that's where I was going with this. That's great. Yeah, yeah you're, you're right on, right on target. I mean, not only rice production, but... Uh, palm oil is one of the big ones. So there's a, a thing called, or a thing, a group called the Union of Concerned Scientists mm-hmm. that started in the 1960s out of MIT, which is basically where the smartest people in the universe live. I know. It's on Earth. I, well, I think I did I tell you, I got to do, I was a, a, a guest like lecturer or discussion group leader there last week. No way. Oh, yeah. at MIT? Oh, my yeah. God, Angie. Yeah. See, on our podcast, I we, we have the smartest, one of the smartest humans on earth that helps in the podcast. Thank you, Angie. Uh, yeah, well, it was a little bit, you know, a lot of life is not what you know, it's who you know. My sister-in-law yeah. is a professor there, but I will still take it where I can oh, get no. it, right? And it was well, fun. She, it was a good, was, yeah, it was a good discussion. Yeah. And I actually, I think with uh, everything you do in life, I... I had a lot of fun, but I, I also learned how I can improve it next time. And uh, of course, doing things in this now uh, social distancing kind of virtual world that we're living in, it's uh, not as easy to do a guest lecture as it is when you're obviously in oh, person, yeah. right? Yeah. So yeah, I know, but I think it, it went well and um, yeah, but so. Hey, when you have the hey. smartest people on earth wanting to talk to you, Angie, yeah, you're in I that know. group. I'll you're in that it. group. You're I'll in that group. It. I'll take it. it. It was fun. It was fun. All right. So uh, the the UCS, this group of concerned scientists that started you know many 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 years ago and still going, the there's really four commodities that are responsible for deforestation of our tropical forests. So we talk about palm oil, which Angie just mentioned, wood products we've mentioned before on that on this podcast, soy. Growing lots of soy. Soy is a good it, – it's a source of protein, cheap hey, source of I protein. Hey, I remember soy. Yeah, my whole dissertation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I know. That was Angie's whole PhD. Phytoestrogens, yeah. Yeah, forever. Oh, man, you did such a good job on that. And then beef. So those are the four commodities. Beef, soy, palm oil, and wood products are the reason forests are being cut down across the planet. You know, so that's the, the, the big thing. So the UCS estimates that – each year we lose about the size of Switzerland. You know, it's about 15,000 square miles or 38,000 square kilometers each year is lost. And it's just unsustainable. It's unsustainable. So we're seeing a lot of this in Southeast Asia. This is where the king cobra lives amongst other species. We've talked about quickly on palm oil. Angie's right. I mean, palm oil has exploded It's in 2015, the global palm oil market was about 65 billion American dollars. In 2021, that's estimated to reach almost 92 billion American dollars in six years. So it's a 30 something percent growth. I would say, you know, and I'm going to mention this at the end of the podcast, palm oil, it's a huge, huge concern because 
forests are just being zapped out of existence in that part of the world for palm oil. There's two apps. I'm just going to mention it here at the beginning of the podcast is for us in the in North America, the United States, the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo mm-hmm. has the palm oil app. For our friends in New Zealand, Australia, there's Palm Oil Investigations or POI, P-O-I app. Uh, I don't know what they have in Europe. I couldn't find it. But, you know, these apps or anything that has RSPO palm oil on it means it's sustainable. Now, that's a whole different discussion for a whole different day because something like the Orangutan Foundation International is like, I don't care about these apps. I don't care about, there's nothing sustainable about palm oil. We have to stop using it because it's come at a cost of a huge loss of biodiversity in Asia. So they want to end all palm oil, which, you know, uh, we'll see. But, you know, that's what's going on in, in the, bringing it back to King Cobra, their habitat. I didn't realize it was that bad. I knew it was like, especially with Asian elephants. Sure. But I didn't realize how quickly they were losing their force. And it was actually more than the Amazon. Like I thought the Amazon was the worst. Right. Right. Well, that's why people can choose to either not use palm oil or at least go for the sustainable palm oils. You being a good consumer using these apps and voting with your dollar and showing, showing the people with the big money that we don't want palm oil that comes at a, at a high cost of losing the incredible rates of biodiversity. So there has to be a happy medium somewhere. And that can start by basically bothering people's bottom line. <laughs> so yeah, I know. I that's know. how, that's how you get things done uh, as we're learning in this day and age. So. Well, it's one way. I mean, it's one way people can, can help conservation. Right. From their you couch. Know, it's like, Absolutely. you know, I'm not going to, you that's, know, that say, should be the series. We, the next series is our couch, couch conservation. <laughs> I know. We're all well, stuck at I mean, home right now. Yes. People, people aren't going to go vegan or vegetarian, you know, without a choice and, and, you know, not expect people to do that. You can use some of these things and say, you know what, I'm not going to buy that product and I'll, and I'll tell the company why, you know, this isn't sustainable, Mm -hmm. you know, or I'm, I'm not going to buy bottled water plastic. That's when we do notion species. I mean, there's things that we can do and companies are taking notice. They are absolutely absolutely taking notice. They Mm -hmm. absolutely are. Mm -hmm. So. I mean, this is a huge, important reptile across Asia, Angie. I mean, it's huge. Oh, yeah. And they're critical to the ecosystem. I mean, absolutely. absolutely I mean, they're an apex predator. And we'll talk a lot about mm-hmm. their nutrition and what they eat. But uh, they eat a lot. And they have a big yeah. role. And they have a few predators, but not too many. And so without them, talk about having a lot more snakes or a lot more rodents or some potential unwanted pests, uh, they would be, you know, without the King Cobra, they would be there. And so their ecosystem role and where they fall in the, in the food web or food chain is high up there. And study after study shows that when you pull apex predators out of a food web, it has a very, very catastrophic effect on not just one or two species, but on several. Mm -hmm. So it is important that I even, if you're not a fan of snakes or even less of a fan of venomous snakes, is they they play a huge role and they're really, really important. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And these ones are vulnerable. You know, we didn't mm-hmm. mention that yet. Like yeah. their population is decreasing and, you know, they're they're definitely, de- you know, they're, yeah, they're the in population's they're in, in decline trouble. and the IUCN lists them as vulnerable. And 
we looked around for population counts. And of course, there's not a specific number as much as Chris and I like numbers, but we do know their population is declining and especially depending on which region they're in. But on a positive note is when we're looking at the economic importance for humans, there's several reasons to rejoice in them. First and foremost, because they're so big and so impressive and stunning to look at and have these cool behaviors, they're really one of the most attractive highlights or exhibits at accredited zoos and or um, nature centers. So people love seeing them and wanting to learn more about them. And they're just a highly revered species uh, of snake. And that's just looking at from more of a modern point of view. When you go back historically from the region where this snake is found, the king cobra is an iconic or prominent symbol in mythology, in folk traditions and storytellings, in India, in Sri Lanka, in Myanmar. So it's actually even the native reptile in India. So it's it's similar to our bald eagle, right? It's like loved yeah, and adorned yeah. and there's yeah. just been, I mean, just so much. I don't have time to get, unfortunately, to get into all the mythology and, and folk traditions today, but it, it's really a symbolic species. And so I think that we need to do our part to help save it, right? And, and the forest mm-hmm. that it lives in. And then if you're more of a uh, biomedical person, or if you still haven't convinced your family members or friends why we should save king cobras, interestingly enough, their venom is yielded a whole bunch of pain relievers, such as cobroxin and also niloxin. Cobroxin, I love it. I yeah, love it. Which, cobroxin. Which, <laughs> yeah, I know. Cobroxin and uh, niloxin, which uh, can be used for severe arthritis pain. And I'm sure mm-hmm. a lot of people out there have a, a family member that might be, you know, potentially is suffering from arthritis pain. And so learning a lot about them from a physiological or biomedical point of view uh, is can be really important for human medicine. So I think that it's it's really important when you have a species that's so like loved and adorned by many people in many cultures, but then also potentially like not liked or feared because it's a venomous snake, it has this kind of polarizing point of view. I think it's really important to focus on the positive, in my opinion. Yeah, no, they're, yeah, yeah. I mean, and wait till we get some of the behaviors Angie's going to talk about. It's amazing. So looking at their evolution, it, it it's very interesting. You know, overall, since it's been so long since we've covered a snake, you know, there's over 3,600 species of snake or serpentines, you know, is the, uh, the, the, the order. There's 20 families within that, 520 genera. And then you have all these species, which mm-hmm. are just huge. So if you wanted to do a podcast just on snakes, there you go. 3,600 plus you could do. <laughs> just Good. Our work. Snake. We've got our work cut yeah. out for us, Chris. Yeah. Job yeah. security, Them buddy. and birds. Yeah. 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 Them and birds. So, um, you know, when you get to this not true, okay. So they're part of the family Elapidae, mm-hmm. which is the family of, of venomous snakes. These are the, the tropical ones that we see in not only Asia, where we are now, but in the Americas, Africa, Australia, mm-hmm. you know, or even Pacific, you know, the islands and things like that. And these are called elapids. So the true cobras are part of this elapid family, but 
they're a different genus. So they're the genus of nausea. Mm -hmm. And that is the true cobra family, which is 38 species that's from Africa to Asia. And we could even go back to, you know, you and I were kind of laughing before we got going. Honey badger, episode 10, that eats cobras, but not king cobras, right? Like they they go after the the true cobras. Now, the king cobra is not because they're their own genus, which is Ophiophagus hanna. Now, overall evolution for, for snakes, the, the best guess in science is that, you know, we even went back, geez, you know, reptiles came before dinosaurs. Right. You know, 175 million years ago, the best guess is that they they snakes came from lizards. But, you know, there's other competing theories. Was it like a worm type aquatic creature or whatever? The first snake. Now, this is cool. The first snake that we found is in southern England about 170 million years ago. And it's Eophis underwoody. And it's like the earliest fossil of a snake. That's you know? so cool. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, you you know, of all the places in the world. Now, most modern snakes, the diversity really didn't emerge until the end of the age of the dinosaurs. So when dinosaurs went extinct, then snakes kind of exploded and diversified. The first elapids or venomous snake, the first venomous snake was actually an elapid, which okay. is what we're talking about, cobras, mm -hmm. about 25 million years ago in Africa. So, and that's when I think the first evidence of fangs, you know, these, okay. these, yeah. and we're going to talk a little bit about fang physiology with that. So, you know, and that gave rise to eventually the King Cobra in India. We don't have any specifics on like when exactly they emerged, okay. but you know, they've been around for, for a couple million years, but obviously snakes have been around for a long, long time. Oh yeah. Yeah. Long time. Yeah. Okay. Now we have talked about the largest snake ever. Mm-hmm. Which was cool. I don't know if you remember that. Remember we had it at the Florida Museum when I was there a long time ago. I love that story. Oh, the, yeah. Remember that? Yeah. Remember? There was a student that found it. Yeah, from mm -hmm. Florida. He yeah. was a grad student. Yeah, his professor was I don't remember the name, though. Okay. So his professor, it's, it's you know, to give people the, the cliff notes, his professor was, was down in Columbia looking for giant crocodile bones. And there was like a mine. And so he was shipping back bones and the grad student, like this would be like me and Angie. This was like right when me and you were like grad student professor back then. Yeah. And he was unwrapping the fossils, looking at them. And he like went by and the student said, that looks like a snake fossil. And he's like, you're right. So he looked it up and it was the backbone of a giant boa which eventually gave rise to Titanoboa. That was the name, Titana. Yeah. Right, like 60-something mm -hmm. feet long and enormous. And I remember there was a special on National Geographic about it. And the, at the uh, the exhibits, this is so dorky, the exhibit at the museum there in Florida, and I'm watching it, and the grad student's on. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then I look left, and he's standing right next to me, and I, I look right, it. and he's on TV, and I look left, and I was like, oh, my God, how cool. You know, it was so a dorky moment for me. Okay, it. the largest venomous snake, this is cool. Uh-oh. Okay, four million years ago from Greece, and this is Leophis crotaloides, crotolides, I think crotolides, because everything's like Archimedes or something in there. So Leophis crocodiles was only about 13 feet long. 
Okay, so not as quite as long as our King Cobra, but weighed almost three times the weight, up to 57, 60 pounds, 26 wow, kilograms. Wow, that's a fatty, yeah. Yeah, so basically it was like a viper. It was uh-huh. just like a huge viper type snake, and that's the largest venomous snake ever, but luckily died out about 4 million years ago, so. You'll never run into it. That's probably not a bad. It was still probably more scared of us than we would be of them, but still. Yeah. Ah, yeah. 60 pound, 13 foot (laughs) snake. Oh my God, I would die. But you don't know. Who knows in Florida, you know? Geez, you guys got... uh... Burmese pythons. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Burmese pythons. They are. Yeah, they get big. They get big. They're big. They're big. All right. Now, the king cobras... This is surprising. On average, 20 years, which is pretty long. I know, Chris. Yeah. Like I said, there's so many surprises in this podcast. I thought that was incredible. Just goes to show like how well adapted they are to surviving as an apex predator and they're in in Asia where they live. And I just, yeah, it's awesome. Now, one of the things, you know, we got to do, we got to definitely get another herpetologist on here. Because looking at their physiology, I just had to to dive, and I didn't get too much into the details. But you know, when you do look at their anatomy, mm-hmm. they do basically have the similar organs, like you know, mammals, animals, you know, other reptiles. But it's just long, you know, and that compact body. So their lungs. This was kind of interesting. The the two lobes, like most animals, you know, like or two lungs, like the right and left lung. Mm-hmm. In snakes, the left lung is like a vestibule. Usually the right lung is the one that they use to breathe, and the left one in, in most species isn't really functional. Okay. So, you know, I couldn't find anything specific on King Cobra if it was or not, but I'm, I'm sure it's probably pretty similar. So, you know, they're, they predominantly only have like one lung that works most of the time. You know, the and then the the left isn't as functional, but you know they have big livers, they have stomachs, small intestines, large intestines. You know the gonads, male, female, depending on that. Adrenal glands, kidneys. So you know a thymus, parathi- the thyroid glands. Sure. Yeah. You know brains. I mean, heart basically the yeah, yeah the heart pumping. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. what, that's always why I've loved anatomy and physiology because I think. Yeah. Of course, from species to species, there's unique functions uh, and unique physiology. But yeah, the general, especially when you're looking at uh, vertebrates, it's a lot of you know, a lot of similarities, and yeah. and they have a lot, you know, a lot to teach us about our own our own bodies and our own physiology. So yeah, no, it's really cool. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, similar function, you know, mm-hmm. stomach, they eat, it goes oh, to the yeah. stomach, oh, they acid poop. breaks down the protein. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah they poop. Yeah, they do. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, snake poop is uh, super stinky. Uh, <laughs> oh, great. But yeah, luckily, they no don't, thanks. when you're taking care of them, they don't poop every day. So there's that. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And then, okay, so uh, King Cobra eyesight is, it's actually better than most snakes. They, right. I was reading yeah. that they could see a moving person like 100 meters away, which yeah. seemed mm-hmm, pretty incredible mm-hmm. to me. So, you know, and they, good they, night vision, even though we'll talk about too, they usually are a little bit more hunt during the day, but yeah, they do, they can see at mm-hmm. night. 
And then Angie, you know, I remember going back to our, our snake episodes, you know, the, the tongue, the fork tongue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, you know, chemo reception. So like the left fork, the right fork, they will, you know, slither and, and, and stick that tongue out. And depending on where the molecules were stronger, that will orient them in to where they want to go or where there's their prey yeah, is. Right. I mean, yeah. snakes, king cobras are no different. Uh, they have an excellent sense of smell. And as you said, in general, they the way they do this is almost through tasting. So snakes have developed this highly specialized organ called a Jacob's organ and makes them basically be able to taste and smell the air. And the Jacob's organ is going to be found at the base of a snake's nasal cavity. And it has two ducts that reach down into the roof of the snake's mouth. And so they use that tongue uh, to, it, the flicking vibration to yeah basically gauge the location of its prey and it can also help it sense vibrations and movement and yeah it's just really really incredible it's a whole almost like a it's not really a sixth sense it's kind of like a combination mm-hmm. of our two senses or of our, our of our taste and our smell so yeah really really cool adaptation to help them be able to locate their prey yeah it's almost like a superhero power, you know? Totally, you yeah, it's totally yeah, superhero yeah. power. Now, I talked about their fangs, you know, and, mm-hmm. and the fangs are like a hypodermic needle where they inject venom. Mm-hmm. Now, what we do know about king cobras, their venom is is not the most potent, you know, because I'll just say because they're not from Australia. You have to be from Australia <laughs> to have yeah. the most. You have to be. Yeah, you have to be from Australia to be the world's deadliest animal. It's, yeah. You just have to be. Everything in Australia will kill you. It's like in Australia, it's like go big or go home. Like we're the biggest, baddest, yes. the you know, the best. Oh, they are with everything, with yeah. everything. Yeah. So most of, and I've covered this in the previous pod, but the, you know, the taipan is the mo- the deadliest toxin of any snake from Australia. Then you have the sea snakes. Then you go to the brown snake, Australia. Then you go back to the sea snakes, which is tropical oceans, probably Pacific near Australia. Anywhere near Australia. <laughs> then you go to another sea snake that's kind of near Taiwan, but probably near Coral Sea, near Australia. Then coastal Taipan, which is Australia. Then the crate. Okay, so that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. You get away from Australia. And where's and that's the crate up in from? China, China Taiwan, okay. mm-hmm. Vietnam. Okay. But then a bunch, the tiger snake, <laughs> Australia. <laughs> So Australia kill you, but but the, the king cobra does win something about its venom. It injects like the most, right? Volume makes them. Yes, it's that's what makes them so deadly. Size does yeah. matter, absolutely. It does matter with them. Yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. up to what seven milliliters or one and a half teaspoons. That's a lot. That's a lot of venom. That's, that's a lot. lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Enough to kill 20 people or an elephant. Yeah, poor little elephant. Yes, yes. What I did find interesting about this is they're in an evolutionary arms race with their prey. Mm-hmm. It was That was when I was looking up evolution. This kept popping up, and I was like, whoa, this is kind of interesting. So I kind of went down this rabbit hole a little bit. And, you know, again, the cobra's shy. It doesn't want to attack people or animals or anything, unless it's either protecting hunting. its eggs mm-hmm. or yeah, hunting or it's cornered. But 
these proteins, like they've gone and, and looked at all these proteins that make up the venom. Yeah, I was such a dork. I was like actually reading the different names of the proteins. Yes, I knew you would. <laughs> you biochem. Yeah. But yeah, I thought the whole thing that they sequenced it and it's actually constantly evolving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's crazy. So it just turns out that the venom is is w- was just created from proteins that had other functions in the body that they happened to... to con- you know, congregate in the venom. And as they've used it on their, their prey and prey have become more immune to it, they've had to survive or evolve. So a different snake that had different venom was more successful. So they bred and, and their genes got carried on. So anyways, I thought it was, I thought it was, you know, fascinating without, you know, going too much into all the proteins and stuff, but just that there was evolutionary arms race. That's exactly like, and I think it's, I was, I guess, pleasantly surprised it wasn't just one, uh, one interference protein blocking this receptor or that, that there's actually a cascade of several proteins and or enzymes that attack the body in multiple strategies, if you will, more or less. And depending on the snake, different venoms are going to do different things to an animal Mm -hmm. or human's body. So... Most vipers, for example, they're going to target the circulatory system and they destroy red blood cells. But the venom from the king cobra basically stops or hinders or slows down communication between nerve cells. And so, which has to do a lot with acetylcholine receptors and things like that. And so when you're not able, when your nerves aren't able to communicate, you can have extreme dizziness, blurred vision, and then most importantly, uh, paralysis. So mm-hmm. it's it's just a different you know different tactics, different strategies as far as how they're uh, basically you know disrupting our cellular activity. And right. and but the the good news is, is of course that if there are antivenoms that are mm-hmm. specifically for king cobra. Uh, bites that can, you know, as long as they're administered, usually within 30 minutes of a bite that they can undo a lot of the damage um, that a bite can potentially do. So, you know, that's... And it's real, it's rare, right? I mean, it's oh, rare. Oh, yeah. It's extremely it's, rare, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 super rare. Uh, in fact, I, f- I found it super fascinating that um, it's a lot, the king cobra is a lot ca- more cautious than smaller snakes. And as you mentioned, it's usually only going to attack or bite people if it's cornered or in self-defense. We'll talk a little bit some about some of its uh, breed, uh, breeding and brooding behaviors. But uh, throughout its range in Indonesia and India, the king cobra causes fewer than five human deaths a year, which is about one-fifth as many caused by rattlesnakes in North America. Which we know is still low, like which is super really low. Rare. Yeah, I mean, so yeah. Yeah. it's and then and then a, and then an interesting statistic in Thailand is most king cobra bites uh, are from snake charmers, which still are very very small, right? And so right, yeah. we're talking about really 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 small numbers. I mean, 
it's uh and but there's e- a couple billion people that live in that area and their whole range right, right. i mean it's right exactly yeah. so yeah. um yeah it's not it's not up there as one of the higher uh, causes of human deaths as far as animals i mean we all know dog bites and uh, and, and, and mosquitoes <laughs> and you know bee stings and all sorts of things so yeah. They uh, don't. Yeah. That's the thing is there's a lot of myth behind uh, them being these, you know, killing machines or something like that. Yes, they do have potent venom. We know that. Mm-hmm. Um, and their venom can mm-hmm. kill you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, in the same instance, that's not uh, it's just, just the, the probability it's is, rare. Is, is pretty, pretty low. So I do know of one animal. And we've kind of like, you know, already talked about this, but that is kind of immune to it. Right. Yeah. That hunts hunts them or you know may kill them. Yeah, well some of us have uh, probably heard of the mongoose called Ricky Ticky Tabby, which was known by the author Kipling's book The Jungle Book to basically, you know, attack uh cobras. And so that is to expand on that, there's uh, there's definitely truth to it. The Indian gray mongoose, which we haven't covered mongoose, that'll be a fun one we'll I know, do sometime cuz a uh, really, really cool creature. Uh, but the Indian gray mongoose can is known to fight and or kill uh, venomous snakes and then in particular cobras. So there's several ways that they're able to do this. Uh, number one is they have a like they're very agile, so they can like move around the snake pretty quickly and they have really thick coats. So it's gonna probably blunt some of the the penetrating venom. But so typically, the venom will bind to the acetylcholine, those receptors I mentioned, and, and the nervous system uh, of their victim. Well, researchers have found that the mongoose, uh, certain species of mongoose, are able to block this venom from binding to their acetylcholine receptors. So, therefore, the cascade of basically uh, imperialis doesn't happen as much. It's almost like the venom heads into their brain receptors and like bounces off for a lack of scientific, oh, okay. scientific ex- explanation. Yes. yes, uh, yes. <laughs> which I, I, I prefer, even as a scientist, I like, I prefer I know. A lack of scientific, yeah. scientific explanation sometimes. So, but yeah. And because of that, it, it's almost like they are immune to it, but they technically are not immune to it. So uh, to mean to be immune to something basically means that none of it can affect you. There's no effect. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's no, no effect. effect. And yeah. that's not true with the, with the mongoose. I mean, they can definitely handle small amounts of snake venom. But if they get a huge load of it, uh, they, or they get bitten many times or too much volume or too much potency, uh, it can overwhelm their system and they might die. But yes, in general, they can they can take down a, a cobra. So when you talk about this uh, evolutionary arms race, that is somewhat of what's Mm -hmm. going on, right? As far Mm -hmm. as they get stronger, the cobras need, their venom needs to get stronger, you know, back and forth, vice versa type deal. Yeah. Yeah. It just reminds me of Honey Badger. I mean, Honey Badger doesn't care. He just (laughs) sleeps it off or she sleeps it off, you know, but you're right. They probably, if they get too much of it, they may not sleep it off. (laughs) Right. Right. So it's not like they're immune to it. They're just kind of resistant to it. Yeah. They have some, definitely some resistance, some, uh, some alterations of their, basically their, the receptors. Uh, Right. And so, which is once again, really cool biomedical technology that, uh, you know, potentially is worth exploring further. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Angie did say, you know, earlier with the the hood. So that's the, that's what they're known for, the iconic cobra 
hood. Yes, let's talk and about the hood. This was so yeah, fun so, learning and reading about it this week. You know, and probably some, you know, be good to, I, we'll, we'll cover nutrition quickly, but, you know, leading into behavior. So when threatened, this is what, you know, the hood is. It's a warning device. Like, hey, look at me. Not only am I bigger, because now I've got this hood that makes me look bigger, but hey, I'm a, I'm a cobra. You don't want to mess with me. I've got venom. So what happens is it, it's loose skin around their neck. And when excited or threatened, so they actually, what they do is they have movable ribs that when it inflates, it like extends the, the ribs up and spreads the hood. Mm-hmm. So then they're like, boom, they take, you know, pull in air and those lungs expand and now they're up and they're looking around and they've got this big hood and they're like, you don't want to mess with me. And I'm like, no, I don't want to mess with you. <laughs> I don't want to mess with you. Exactly. <laughs> I know what you are. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of what it is. You know, it's, it's just, it's just so iconic. I mean, for snakes, it's just the most iconic thing in the snake world. I think, I think it's just one of the most, icon- that and the rattle. I mean, what else more? Sure. You know, I mean, there's snakes do a lot of cool stuff, but those two things. Are yeah. Those warning so signals iconic. are pretty prominent. Like you, you know, they mean business. And I think with, with the rattle, it's that noise. It's like, uh Oh, but with the yeah. King Cobra or Corbos in general, that's that upright stance of getting, you know, lifting their upper chest or whatever. And then, yeah, having their whole, their head and you know, neck becomes so much bigger. And it's quite, uh, it's quite beautiful. That hood is really yeah. is stunning. Yeah. It's impressive. It's impressive. To watch it's on impressive. videos. <laughs> yeah, I know. Exactly. Or from a very safe distance. Yeah. So AJ, this was surprising too, because usually you think venomous snakes eat like Rats, mice, mice and sure. rodents, mm-hmm. and other things. Yeah, maybe frogs. The king cobra, their diet is other snakes. I mean, that's what they want to eat is other cold-blooded animals. That's other, what they're going you know, for. Snakes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, I didn't, and know that, I didn't know that going into the podcast. And I no, that's no. Cool. Yeah, it's so interesting. Yeah, I mean, I know there's snakes that you know that they do hunt other snakes. I mean, that's what they do. I didn't know cobras did, and you know, generally. It's not venomous snakes they go after. They go over rat snakes mm-hmm. or pythons yeah. up to 10 feet mm-hmm. in length. Pythons, mm-hmm. you know, but they could go for some other venomous things like Indian cobras, which is a true cobra, the crates, which we just talked about, mm-hmm. or even smaller king cobras. So sure. They'll do a little of that too. But mm-hmm. yeah, I just thought that was crazy. Now, they have been seen eating eggs and lizards and maybe small mammals every now and then, but primarily a diet of snake. Yeah. Yeah. In the wild yeah. for sure. I, I know under human care, they will consume um, rodents, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no. And that, I think that's obviously the only w- you know way that I've really seen or known about them before. And so I thought it was super interesting to learn that they, they love to eat these, eat these other snakes and some of them are <laughs> venomous themselves. And so, yeah. Yeah. And that's where that, and then it all started to make sense reading about, okay, yeah, they're an apex predator. They really have this, this, this big group of taxon that they, yeah, that they eat and the, the populations that they help keep under control. And so, uh, yeah, just really, really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, they're only predators again, mongoose, but mongoose don't actively really look. Yeah. Them. I don't yeah. think they're, that's not what they're trying to go for. Yeah. But large birds of prey may catch them, and you know, especially the smaller ones. And then human humans really their number one predator. You know mm-hmm. that 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 knocks them out. But mm-hmm. 
I know they've got some fun behaviors. There was some fun stuff in there. So. They do. You can probably yeah. see me cheesing on the video chat yeah, right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was like, once again, it's just a real fun species. Uh, but in general, king cobras are mainly active during the day, which once again is a behavior that kind of separates them from t- true cobras and that true cobras are usually a bit more active during dusk and dawn. And so, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, that's when they'll do, they'll definitely do a lot of their hunting and mm-hmm. although they have been seen doing a little hunting at night, so it probably depends on the exact uh, habitat and location where the cobra is living. And as Chris previously mentioned, that yes, they have been recorded climbing, and they're known to be hanging out mm-hmm. in trees, which is probably a place where you wouldn't really look for them. So you want to keep your eyes and eyes and ears open, which you should always do when you're hiking in the wild, right? Um, but they they typically do their hunting on the ground um on the forest floor so uh but there have been studies that shown with the uh, tracking vices of them going 65 feet up into the canopy so pretty crazy yeah and then yeah. And, and once again too some of these tracking studies have shown that they will swim short distances so uh not that they're typically found in the water or anything like that mm-hmm. but they they definitely don't shy away from it if they need to go from point a to point b and in general, once again, they have kind of this notorious reputation of, oh, they're a big, long, venomous snake, but they really are shy. I just, I don't, I don't think I can really stress it enough on this podcast that they will avoid humans at all costs. And, uh, and even when they are cornered or confronted, they're not going to necessarily attack, right? That's when a lot of times they'll show the behavior of, you know, getting up off the ground a little bit and um, opening up their hood and hissing or growling as we open some of those uh, vocalizations. So, you know, they would prefer to escape. And so if they have a place to escape to, they probably will. Uh, But if they're cornered, then that's when they might be, uh, they might feel that they need to strike. I mean, they know that, you know, you don't, humans don't look like a snake. We're very far from it. We have arms and things like that. So, Mm -hmm. and legs. So, that's yeah. They're they're not going to accidentally mistake us for a uh, food item. So if anything, it's it's more out of, of fear. And they they you know they once again they're like snakes in the grass. They're more scared of you than you are of them. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah. And then uh, with vocalizations, we opened with the growl, and I just think that that is um, really really incredible. And so what they do is the sound, of course, is used to intimidate. They're warning you. They're not inviting you to come mess with them. They're they're no. saying, please don't mess with me. I don't really want to bite you. And so th- what they'll do is uh, if they feel threatened, they'll take a deep breath of air and then rapidly exhale. And basically that forces this burst of air uh, through an organ called the tracheal diverticula in the respiratory tract. And it kind of acts as our vocal box. It's like a resonating chamber. And certain scientists basically have compared this sound to an angry dog or a German shepherd or a growl. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it is, it is a little bit more intense than your standard hiss that you might, uh, have heard before from a snake or even over here, uh, in North America, the, the rattle from, right. a, uh, from a rattlesnake is, it's a sound you don't want to hear, but it's not necessarily a scary sound like that growl that I opened up with. So, uh, and regarding social behavior, they're pretty, you know, they pretty much keep to themselves unless they are breeding. And we'll talk about that here in a second. Uh, But I did find an amazing video on YouTube. Thank you, YouTube, of 
male king cobras that were actually wrestling. And yes, I watched all five minutes of it. It was just, yeah, yeah. just so it wasn't, it was actually like a really nice snake wrestling match. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. a fair way to describe it, <laughs> but it's a ritual. And so, but a lot of times they're doing this basically to win breeding rights to a female during breeding season. And basically they kind of, they're, they're upright and they're just wrestling more almost like neck wrestling if you will and the goal researchers think is to push the one who basically pushes the other one's head to the ground kind of like a thumb a thumb wrestling match right like <laughs> thumb you, wrestling that is yeah <laughs> no if blood you, and guts if, but you, thumb push wrestling, it, if yeah. you push it down like you get the other head yeah. down to the ground you win and uh what's super fascinating is they there's no biting involved right mm-hmm. even though King cobra snakes are largely immune to their own venom, which is why, as you mentioned, Chris, they mm. will sometimes eat smaller uh, cobra snakes as part Cobras, of their diet. Yeah. But yeah, there's no biting. It's just, it's very fair wrestling. And I guess the stronger, the th- probably the evolutionary reason for this is the stronger mm. one ends up winning and therefore the female gets the um, the genetic uh, bonus right. of the stronger male. And so, yeah. It was a it was a cool video that um, that I was able to watch them engage in this this unique breeding behavior, and so whoever you know pins the other one down head down to the ground wins right to breed the female, and once the male and female king cobras breed, the female will lay her eggs after about fifty to fifty nine days, depending on what region she lives in, and she will lay about seven to forty three eggs. So a big wide range. Wow. Uh, I don't know if yeah. that depends on diet or size or age. I couldn't really find the research about that. Uh, and then Chris, the king cobra eggs will incubate for about sixty-six to one hundred and five days. Okay, but I need to focus on this incubation phase because it's highly unique in the snake species. So king cobras are the only species of snake in the world that actually build a nest mound to protect, incubate, and basically ferociously guard their eggs. Okay. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, So so most other species of snakes are going to lay their eggs in burrows or under rocks or logs or in some leaf litter. But King Cobra builds an actual mound, like builds up of vegetation, leaves, leaf litter, sticks, things like that, that she collects, okay? She builds this nest from dead vegetation and then has the ability to understand which vegetation works better to build nest chambers. So in the wild, it's been reported that these female king cobra snakes construct a two-chambered nest, okay? Hmm. So the eggs are deposited in the lower chamber, while the female will reside in the upper chamber, getting her son and enjoying herself, and then also guarding the behavior. Wow, okay. And she's guarding these eggs from predators, right? Because there's rat snakes, Hmm. you know, and there's a lot of things will steal and eat eggs if possible. Yeah, reptiles, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so... Even more fascinating, okay, is that there's reports that the male king cobra 
is not a completely deadbeat daddy snake. Okay. <laughs> okay. There's reports that the male will stick somewhat nearby and also become aggressive during the brooding period. Now, it's highly documented that the female is, that's when she's going to be more aggressive. Right. Okay. So right, right, right. she's shy, 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 shy. She builds this big old nest mound that no yes, other snakes yeah. she does with two chambers. She is going to guard those eggs. Defend and so that, yeah. that those hormones kick in and then, yeah, she's going to be more willing to strike than she would at another time. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess the moral of the story is to stay away from King Cobra. Don't nests. mess with, yeah. Yeah. I mean, but that's any them, yeah. mama. Any mama I know. is like that. So. Yeah. No, nah, cassowary. Yeah, that's true. That's, yeah, there's definitely <laughs> some. There's definitely some different ones out there. The um, one in the world. Yeah, the one in the world. Lacey Hagan walks off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like what? So yeah, uh, now, and once again, the male behavior. There needs to be a little bit more supporting evidence because some of the uh, the literature is a little dated as far as I think it's like 1946, 1957, where it's been suggested that the male king cobras will participate in this nest, nest guarding behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's been, since then, there's been some conflicting reports. Uh, but still, I mean, it, it's just really unique in, uh, in the snake world. And I know that there's really cool studies going on in Arizona here in North America about the diamondback rattlesnakes and how they are finding that there is more and more parental care of uh, juvenile rattlesnakes than ever thought before. So it's just good to keep in mind that these species deserve to be saved and conserved mm-hmm. and studied because we still have a lot more to learn about them. And they just, I mean, this behavior that the king cobras do is fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a snake. It's a snake. It's, and it's yes. building its cute little nest and it yeah, has the, the ability it. to yeah. make it have the architecture for it has two chambers. And, you know, we think oh. of, I think of like nest building and with like orangutans and a lot of these bird species. So uh, now it's just, it's just quite incredible. And once again, it was another reason why this pod, I just got so excited this week. I couldn't wait to, to share this information. Yes, with this, yeah. Yeah. I mean, animals, they, they just amaze us every week. Yeah. Every week. And, and just for those that live in um, Southeast Asia, just so you know, the breeding season usually occurs in January through April. And so that's when they're going to breed and, uh, and then the female mm-hmm. will lay the eggs. And so the nest building and guarding behavior is usually during the, the late spring and the summer with hatchlings happening in the fall. So if you're out hiking okay. in the woods in the in the summer months, that's when you're just gonna you know be careful that you're not uh, you know look look where you're <laughs> stepping and walk slowly and all that kind of stuff. Yes, so, yes, yes. Now, and Chris, when these baby king cobras are born, guess mm. how big they are. Um. So if they get up to eighteen feet, uh, foot. Maybe? Oh my gosh, that's you're so big. good. Yeah. That's pretty big though. Yeah, yeah. you should go buy okay, a lottery ticket. Yeah, no, exactly. Okay, yep, right, they're, right. they're just yeah. about a foot long and then they have alternating uh, white, yellow, and black bands that run the length of their bodies and they're and they're really quite striking. They're, they're really, the bands are much more prominent um, than in adults. And once again, depending on where the species is from, they'll, when they grow up, they'll lose a lot of these chevrons or these bands when they're fully grown, and they might almost be somewhat solid brown or olive green in color, except for um, in Myanmar, 
they, those adult king snakes are ones that typically remain, remain a little bit more banded. Yeah, I mean, they're, yeah, it's uh, amazing. And, you know, it, it's like we kind of talked a little bit about losing biodiversity in that area of the world. So, you know, their populations are decreasing as we lose, you know, land mass. I mean, it's like, you know, people, you know, always want to keep animals in the wild, but geez, there's no wild left. It's disappearing. So that's where it's just like, we need to keep looking at these biomes. And that's such a critical piece of conservation. So overall vulnerable, you know, looking at the data from IUCN, because this is really the, the, the best data we have in Vietnam, the, they have estimated that the species there of king cobras has declined by more than 80%, you know, not only habitat loss, but they're, they're hunted, you know, not only for like meat, but for like leather, things like that. Uh, in India where, you know, again, they're kind of revered 30% reduction in China. They think they're pretty much gone. I mean, there might be some left, but not many because again, exploited for all things medicine. Again, here we go, you know, grinding up, you know, snake scale or whatever. I, I don't know. And when they actually do have medicinal value, but just not the way the Chinese are using it or these markets are using it, these wet markets, which have been in the news the last couple of months, which we've got to eradicate those. But anyways, overall decreasing vulnerable to it's a species heading towards extinction and we need to keep our eyes on them, you know, and in that area of the world, as we keep covering more and more species from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that it's important to note that there are protections uh, for the king cobra. Like in Vietnam, they are protected. And for instance, in India, too, the government is trying to work hard to try to stop some of the illegal wildlife trade, as you mentioned, for body parts and things like that. So uh, people are paying attention to it. But this week, uh, one of the organizations that I found, I was so happy to found it, dedicated to king cobras is the king yeah. cobra conservancy and they can be found at www.thekingcobra.org and also uh, they have a presence on facebook and just a beautiful website so please go check them out and chris will put the king cobra conservancy on our show notes and the mission of the king cobra conservancy is to basically support research and con- conservation initiatives learning about the status of the king cobra in the wild. They want to identify threats, which a lot of, of course, is land loss and humans, but they really focus in on solutions for their survival. And they do this by having a whole board of really, really talented people that are some of the foremost experts in the world on snakes. So, I mean, there's researchers on there that study their behavior, their ecology, the habitats. So a lot of brilliant minds, which was so cool to see all these really, really smart people Mm -hmm. working together Mm -hmm. uh, uh, for the King Cobra Conservancy. And they've done a lot of research. Um, For instance, they studied the ecology and conservation status of the King Cobra in South India, and they've released reports that help uh, the governments be able to potentially provide more protection to them and understand what's happening there. They do a lot with education. So they'll work on video projects that help reduce basically human king cobra conflict, right? And so the people, they'll release these education videos and show them in schools and things like that to to get people to understand more about uh the really important role that king cobras play and that they're not 
super scary and bad. And yeah. and, and you and yeah. I both know, looking at uh, the research data across several species in several countries, uh, it, it, it keeps showing time and time again that if you really want to protect a species, you have to get the local communities on board. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Loving that species, wanting to conserve that species. So... So a huge shout out to the King Cobra Conservation. Uh, they are just working, like I said, internationally, locally. And and in fact, in 2016, they were able to rescue and relocate 108 King Cobras. Oh, wow. So that's okay. another, okay. yeah, another like service yeah. thing that they provide. So that's good. Yeah. So definitely like them yeah. on Facebook and check out more of what they're doing. And it, yeah. it, and it gives me hope when I was taught, when we opened on the pod about how that there's, you know, people people really care about the king cobra. I mean, yeah. Um, and that that always makes me really happy to learn about that, and I, I want to share that with our listeners. Yeah, there's always you know almost every species, almost every species, except uh, what, so what like the hippo, funny. hippo, and what was something we did recently? Yeah, it was, was it? oh, what was it what we did recently? Uh, raccoon dogs. Yeah. Well, they don't really <laughs> need our. Dogs. They're not. Their numbers aren't. Too no. Low. No, no, I'm do. I'm starting the raccoon dogs. You guys are doing the. Hippos. I'm definitely on, on board so, with hippo team. Hippo over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, just to end, you know, conservation tip of the week again. Use those palm oil apps, or, or and I'm going to put some of that info in the show notes uh, in there a little bit more on palm oil. You can look it up. Just to finish, though, while you know, we talked about snake charming, you know, they king cobra is the species of choice for snake charmers in Asia. And the interesting thing is they can't hear, but they're deaf to ambient noise, so they can't hear the flute. So the idea is the they they respond to the movements of the charmer. So as they bob back and forth, the snake bobs back and forth. So they're following it. And then I did read, generally, they do this during the day. They're, they're, like you said, it's very rare for them to strike. But during the day, their strikes are less accurate than, say, you know, dusk or, or dawn. And sometimes the, the, the snakes are just trained not to strike, you know, whether it's through negative reinforcement or, Positive or things punishment, like that. Positive punishment, stuff like that. Punish, punishment, yeah, that they don't strike, so they learn that. Sadly, and, and I read this was rare, but some do either defang them or will sew their mouths shut. But that usually results in the death of the snake. So it's rare to see that, but it can happen, you know. But overall, I mean, I know, you know, we talked about like in some parts of the world, they're very revered. These are like pets, you know, snake charming is part of the culture. And, you know, so it's it's interesting. It's interesting stuff to read about. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. Kudos to you, mom. People don't know this, but you know, Angie, like most parents in the world right now, dealing with kids by herself while John's at work. Good job, Angie. Good job today. <laughs> I just had, I had to give you a shout out because I just, I'm sitting here thinking about all the parents in the world. You know, I got my two boys. You're doing a great job with your two boys. Um, yes, good job getting can, work done today. You might even be able to hear my boys kids. in the background. Uh, boys, come here. Do you want to yeah. say hi really quick? Let's hear your snake noises. Come here really quick. Come on, into the microphone. No, you got to do it in the microphone so that everybody can hear it. That's a chicken noise. Let's hear your snake noise, Dad. <laughs> That's a different snake. I've never met that snake before. What about us? Let's let's hear a snake sis, hiss. 
There you go. There you go. And there. All there right. Good job, boys. My microphone. All right. All right, mom. You did a great job today, and thank you. And we will uh, carve out some time to talk about the next species next week. Thank you, everyone, <laughs> for listening and loving and serving and sharing this podcast. We appreciate it. All right. Take care. Bye. Listen. Learn. Share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Are you looking for a podcast your whole family can enjoy together? Uh-huh. Check out Culture Kids Podcast. Our adventures will ignite your curiosity for culture, traditions, languages, geography, and even pop culture with interviews from guests all over the world. Through each episode, we aim to help children become empathetic, creative leaders in their communities and help them see the beauty in our differences. And that's Culture Kids Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.